On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to talk to a lawyer about the Devin Selvey guilty plea. Of course, Devin Selvey was the victim of that horrendous incident, stabbing murder now, now that there's a guilty plea uh, at Winston Churchill School. Uh, we're going to talk to a lawyer about this case, about where this goes and some of the details to deal with it. Horrible case, very well-known case in this area. We'll dive into that. And Don Robertson joins us as well to talk about all kinds of stuff. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. So there was a big story that was, I guess, a surprise story that broke this afternoon. Everyone in Hamilton, I am assuming, everyone, has to be aware of the Devin Selvey story. He was the young boy, the teenager who was stabbed to death outside his school Uh, Back in 2019, it inspired discussion across the country about bullying and reports and studies. And and, and it's just just a horrendous story. This young boy, and again, he's a teenager, but he's still a young boy, dying in his mother's arms outside school. Uh, It just, it's it's such a horrendous, anyone who's got a kid can imagine, sort of, or could maybe kind of put themselves in that scenario and not understand, but at least have a sense, I suppose, of how horrifying that whole story is. Anyway, uh, today, the teenager who was 14 at the time of the incident, who was the teenager who did the stabbing, the trial was supposed to get going. Instead, a guilty plea to second degree murder was filed. And so everyone a little surprised by this one. I want to bring in uh, Jeffrey Manishin, local Defense attorney, defense lawyer, covered many big, high-profile cases over the years. He joins us now. Jeffrey, thanks for doing this today. Uh, Nice always uh, to chat with you, Scott. This, from all accounts, this was a surprise plea. Apparently, everybody thought this was about to head to a trial. So as a lawyer, if you're, and again, uh, for those who don't already know this, Jeffrey had nothing to do with this case. So we're talking in theoretical or situational, not directly related to this. As a lawyer... What would your possible reasons for recommending your client plead guilty rather than fighting be? Well, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Scott, and it's not a case that I followed super closely, but from the articles, I think he had been charged with first-degree murder. Yes. And so he pled guilty to second-degree murder. Yes. So our difference, first-degree murder is a murder that's planned and deliberate in, the, in a case like this one, and second-degree murder would involve the intentional uh, taking of ca- causing somebody's death in an unlawful way where uh, the accused meant to cause his death or meant to cause him bodily harm he knew was likely to cause death and was reckless as to whether or not death resulted. There's our constituent elements. So start with the fact that there is a potential that the Crown might not have been prepared to accept a plea of guilty that the defense might have offered to second and might have said they were going to proceed with first and then ultimately, the potential is that the Crown might have changed its position and agreed to take a plea to second. Alternatively, the defense might have been trying to get the Crown to agree to a plea to manslaughter. Uh, it's a lesser offense, of course, than second. And the Crown may have not been prepared to do it. And ultimately, the decision is, all right, You know, we will, if you won't take manslaughter, we will offer second, and, or at least we'll resolve it on a plea to second. And that happens for adults as well as uh, young people. Uh, of course. Scott, you know, you've got a variety of options that can be available. And sometimes you're resolving it based on the offense. Sometimes you can agree on the offense, but you need to sort out what's going to be the disposition, what's going to be the sentence. Sometimes when it comes to resolving sentence, you can come up with a joint position on sentence. We both agree it should be this. Sometimes you can't. 
And so it's the defense says we're going to ask for X, and the Crown says we're going to ask for Y. So there are a variety of components to any plea resolution. Sure. But is there a concern, if you're the lawyer representing someone in a case that has had this kind of profile, and literally, uh, no, no exaggeration, has sparked a countrywide discussion on bullying in schools, are you a concern that that kind of attention that this case has might make it less likely for a jury to see your side and more likely to be leaning towards you know, being a more difficult jury? When you say a jury, um, I don't know that this young person has been transferred to have his case dealt with as an adult. If he's not being dealt with as an adult, then it's not a jury case. Mm. Remember that. And he wasn't. So well, there you go. So, so it's a case before a judge. So we start with that. But, okay, same question, though. A, no judge me? wants, same question, because no judge wants to also be the subject of scorn within his community. So are you concerned that in a case this high profile, you might actually be having a more difficult time if you don't settle something? No, I don't believe so. I don't believe that one of the factors that you do in trying to resolve a case that's received a lot of publicity is to think, gee, the judge may be susceptible to the publicity that the case has received, and therefore we should offer a resolution that might be more than we otherwise might think is the right disposition. That, I'm, not, I'm not at all of the view that judges are so susceptible to be influenced by publicity that it becomes a factor to take into consideration in trying to resolve a case. Jeff, the fact that the young person here pleaded guilty, he's admitted his guilt. So I think the next question that you can possibly talk about this one, if you had a client who you believed, you didn't believe in their innocence, if you believe they had something to do with it, or you believe they were guilty, is it your obligation as a lawyer to try to convince them to take a plea? Or what, what do you do if you don't necessarily believe your client? Well, that's a really good challenging one. And I might pause to say here, Scott, when I say to you, I would have thought the matter was to be dealt with by way of judge alone. If the, if the procedures that have occurred prior to today had led to a situation where the accused was, where the young person was given an option of a jury and it was scheduled for a jury, well, then if that's, that's where they were, that's where they were. I wouldn't have anticipated that to be the case. But if that's the case, those are procedures that, we, that I'm not familiar with uh, sure. that, in terms of what's happened. To answer your question specifically, um, you have to start by what your client has said to you, and if the client is not prepared to accept responsibility, you can certainly endeavor to show the client the strengths of the case of the Crown, the challenges of the position of the defense, the risks the client is looking at in the event that it goes to trial and the client's found guilty, or alternatively, the potential advantages of accepting a resolution by way of a plea. But our rules don't let us offer to the Crown any kind of plea if the client is not prepared to accept responsibility. Now, if you have a case such as this one where, from everything I have read, it sounds like it was a strong case in the sense of being able to prove what happened. The issue is with what intent, what are the background circumstances, what are other factors that might have been relevant. You, you, never, re you never really want to push a client to be able to resolve a case in the face of the client denying accountability. Your belief doesn't really have anything to do with it. You're looking at the strengths and weaknesses of the case of the Crown and strengths and weaknesses of the defense position. Ultimately, and the reason the, I, the client and, has to make. And Jeff, the reason I asked that question is because there was a second person who was charged in this who pled, or pleaded guilty a little while back, um, and that there were facts read into the court, read into evidence at that time, which would make it, I would think, more difficult because it tended to point, it seems, at this second younger person 
as the person responsible, it, it certainly becomes a more difficult case because there seems to be other people who are willing to speak against them. Oh, certainly. And if you have a situation where, uh, and I think there was an adult um, who pled yes. to a lesser offense yes, and may well have been in a position to be a witness against the young person, so it adds to the strength of the case. And remember, Scott, if we have a situation which at the time that the parties are originally charged, that individual isn't a witness, that individual isn't accused. That individual may not have provided a statement. Now, as we approach the trial, that person may have provided a statement, and now the case for the Crown becomes stronger. So you have to react to circumstances that might change. And if the Crown's case becomes stronger, again, you revisit it with the client and say, look, you know, it's your decision. This is what they now have. Um, and, and so largely, the strength of the evidence of the Crown, together with the, what your client's position is, are factors that are going to drive the issue of what resolution you can work towards. We asked you, I asked you before the break about the idea of the, the, the notoriety of the case and how that might impact things. Uh, we're now going to be heading towards sentencing in this one. Should the sentence in a case like this be affected by the notoriety of the case? And I, I say that because I think as a defense lawyer, you would say, well, no, absolutely not. But looking from society's point on this, so many eyes, so many people are watching this case and from all the evidence that we've been able to see, this is a completely senseless situation. The judge now has an opportunity, theoretically, to offer a very, very strong deterrent to other stupid behavior like this. Should that notoriety factor into what this person gets? Well, remember that in terms of deterrence for a young person, there are a whole set of principles that are very different for young people when it comes to the matter of disposition. So we have to start with that, Scott. It's a different world than adults. Okay, young people are treated differently by their nature being young people and by the legislation that sets up the regime for, for, uh, for dispositions. From the standpoint of publicity, no, the publicity shouldn't make a difference at all in what you're going to give. The judge is going to look at the individual circumstances of the offender, the individual circumstances of the offense, looking at what there is by way of precedent. What kind of case law do we have? I think there was a case out west with a young person who stabbed a number of people at a house party. I, there may have been mental health issues, but ultimately a number of people that were stabbed, and I think the young person was found guilty of something. Um, you want to take a look at treating similarly situated offenders in a similar, in a similar manner. The concept of parity of sentencing is something that we look at. So it's not simply a matter of, well, the public is really concerned, so give a sentence, give a, give a disposition that will reflect the public's concern. It's not, that's not how dispositions like this are arrived at. But if, again, I'm, I'm guessing what a defense lawyer might think. And, and I mean, one that immediately comes to mind for me, again, the concern that the notoriety, the, the scale of the attention paid to this case, um, the Humboldt Broncos bus crash situation, um, under normal, so I think the sentence that that driver of that truck got was way beyond what anyone in a similar circumstance had received before. And a lot of people said that's because the judge looked at this and, and it was impossible not to be extra harsh. Is there a chance that you get more of a sentence, a longer sentence, because again, of how big a case this is? Um, I suppose it's possible in the sense of the judge being influ you know, potentially influenced by public attention. It's not what we would want to have happen. We start with that. Number one. Number two, if the sentence that the judge imposed was excessive compared to what the right range of sentencing should have been, it would be open for the defense to appeal that disposition, to appeal that sentence, or if it could review it. If a sentence was so harsh and excessive as to amount to what we call an error in principle, it's reviewable. And I don't believe that a trial judge would ever want to, at the very 
obviously impose a sentence that would be something designed to placate the reactions of the public. That's, that's not, it, when we look at our principles of sentencing as provided for in the Criminal Code, Youth Criminal Justice Act, or wherever we're looking, case law, they don't talk about placating the public interest. The mm-hmm. idea of denunciation of the offense, to be able to reflect society's repudiation of the, of the behavior, sure, that's a part of it. But and I think matter, this... the case got a lot of publicity, and therefore that should affect what the sentence should be. No, and I think, and we'll, we've got to run. I, I have a feeling, though, in this particular case, I mean, there would be such outrage under the circumstance, as, you know, this happens now and then. Uh, there would be such outrage if this was not a sentence that the public is going to see as significant, or at least at the, at the not the extreme end, but the strong end of what is available to the judge. I, I, I would be kind of shocked if it was not at that, at that stronger end. But Well, guess what, Scott? It could be the case that the parties have agreed on a joint position. True, but so the judge doesn't have up, to follow in that. In a case like this, you may wind up with the Crown of Defense agreeing as to what it should be. Although the judge doesn't have to follow that. we do. Have no, to but the it, case yes. law suggests unless what they've agreed to is way out of the realm, the judge should go along with it. Hmm. So, so, frankly, we'll see. Every case is different. Is this one in which we may find a joint submission being raised? Or at the very least, we may find that part of the resolutions, the defense knows the Crown is not going to ask for more than X. Okay, that may be in which this case gets resolved. But but we'll see. A lot of cases get resolved with a joint uh, position on sentence from Crown and Defense, and that's a component of the case being resolved. That is defense lawyer Jeffrey Manishin. Very much appreciate the time, as always. Thanks for And a Harvey time. Wallbanger is a good drink. I used to have them at the keg years ago. <laughs> Vodka, orange juice, and Galliano. That's what a Harvey right, Wallbanger well, is. Uh, and at the keg, you'd have them keg-sized. It's a nice drink. Today is National Harvey Wallbanger Day, so uh, celebrate accordingly. Jeffrey, thank you for doing this today. Appreciate okay, it. Okay, Scott, my pleasure. Thanks. Bye. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in Don Robertson from the Dundas Real McCoys, from ComChoice Realty, from various and sundry issues and events and activities and things around the Valley Town. Sir, how are you this evening? Scott, how are you? I'm good. I mentioned the Dundas Real McCoys. End of the hour, we're going to get to that because uh, I know that you're one of the few leagues that isn't going yet in hockey, but there is some uh, some hopeful news anyway. So we'll do that at the end of the hour. Um, Don, I want to ask you this, though, very quickly. Uh, I was watching the Leaf game on Saturday night against the Bruins, and I could not figure out why it looked so good and why it looked so familiar and why it looked so comfortable. And then it dawned on me in the third period that it's because the Leafs were wearing their white jerseys, which is the way, their white sweaters, not jerseys, let's not be American. Their white sweaters, and which is the way that it used to be forever and ever and ever until a few years ago when they changed. And it felt like it was the way it was supposed to be. I, I don't know why they do the dark sweaters for the home team, but my goodness, white at home feels like it's the right way to do it in hockey. Well, it was only like that for like a hundred years, right? So, and maybe part of it was because they were playing well, although that may not have had anything to do with it. It's it's kind of a deep tradition in in uh, the Alcap Hockey League. What we do is we wear half and half, so um, the fans get to see both uniforms because you know lots of times, especially for the, uh, the NHL. Nobody follows the team on the road. So we try and switch it up a little bit so that people can see what we're doing. They did that uh, a little a little while ago in the OHA. Uh, it had nothing to do with what we do because we don't have sponsors on the back. It's so the sponsorship would be shown. 
The NHL, though, is far different, Scott, as you pointed out. And, um, yeah, it does feel like home, right? The last time the Leafs won the Stanley Cup, they wore whites. The story that I was told and that I've been able to find out, because there's all kinds of different explanations for why white was for the longest time the home uniform, the best one that seems to make the most sense, and again, there's lots that people can tell me that that's a different reason, but the best one that makes the most sense is because for a long time, I mean, back in the 50s and 60s, you didn't necessarily have the same facilities in all the rinks. And to take a white sweater on the road where the visiting team didn't necessarily have laundry facilities, you would keep your white ones at home because you could wash them more often and the dark ones would hide sweat stains or whatever else while you were on the road until you could get home and launder them. Which, as I say, it makes some sense. It was common sense, right? Like, we can't, you can't go on a four-game road trip if you can't wash your jerseys, sweaters. Um. And that's my understanding is exactly what it was. Of course, that doesn't matter anymore. But back, you know, when the tradition started, of course, that was why they would do it. But it it seems like, and again, I don't want to stay on this one too much. It just was one of those things that struck me as, boy, that, that just felt right. It, it just, it felt like it was the right way to do it. And to see other teams, I don't want to see every other team come in and all be wearing white. You get the exact same colors for every game then. And I know colors, I mean, how big a deal is it? I would prefer to see that, you know, Nashville come in with the bright yellows and Montreal come in with the reds and Boston, as you saw, come in with the blacks and the Islanders come in with the blues or the range. I I don't want to see every day be the exact same thing. No, I, I agree. It mixes it up and gives us a chance to see their uniforms. And so many teams have more than one now. Yep. Like Detroit have the one with the big D, which I I get. But I think the traditional teams, uh, Detroit, Chicago, Rangers, I love those jerseys. Now, yep. that said, uh, Seattle might have one of the coolest sweaters in the NHL, which is really good to see. Nobody's trying to reinvent the wheel, but when you've got 34 teams and you're trying to sell, you know, a, a – a ton of sweaters, then you better get creative so people will buy them, and they do. Hey, new teams have had a track record in the NHL. I mean, remember, remember when the San Jose Sharks came in? Everybody wanted a teal sweater. That was, you know, that was the sweater. And, and you know, there have been others as well. Nashville has done pretty well. But, yeah, now, as I say, Seattle, you're right. Seattle is a, it's an amazing sweater. Uh, good for them for doing it. I'm, I'm sure they're making lots and lots and lots of their money they had to pay to buy in back in uh, in sweater sales um so i i i went to the dundas arena saturday morning to meet a client first time i've been in the building since covid and uh i went i was sat with them and his little guy was out there playing first year in hockey i said what jersey's got on he said he's a kraken so it didn't take dundas minor hockey long to jump into the four really they've got they, a kraken have, team all right they have a kraken team and i went wow that's Good for them. Sweaters were cool. Sorry. Somebody, somebody who designed that sweater got a bonus. I'm sure of it because that is uh, it. it I mean, I'm thinking of the the NHL sweaters over the years that have really just taken off, and I'm going to forget some here. But I mean, the three that come to mind are the Kraken, are the Sharks, and you, you'll remember back when the Los Angeles Kings, when Gretzky got there, went to the black and silver with the uh, 
you know, that one and that one went crazy for a while there too. And so, um, if you do it right, boy, you can make some money. You really can make some money. Let me ask you about uh, a sad story from Hamilton over the weekend. Uh, the passing of Angelo Mosca. I, I defer to Steve Milton on this one who writes for the spectator colleague of mine, because I think he nailed it Don exactly right. When Steve said that there was nobody in Hamilton who became and was more synonymous with this city across the country than Ange Mosca. If you ask people from coast to coast, who was Hamilton? Ange Mosca was probably the guy whose name was going to come up. I agree. And uh, he was an American. And we, back in the day, we liked that. He could have signed with, I think, Philadelphia. And that's also back in the day, Scott, where there was a chance you could make more money playing in the CFL than the NFL. Yeah, that's you true. Never believe that. Cookie Gilchrist did the same thing, went down to Buffalo and played. But, you know, Mosca come up here and he adopted the home, did all the right things. He was bigger than life. I mean, he's, he's, he's a combination between a cartoon character and a superhero. But he loved the black and gold. He made the black and gold famous, rough, tough. You know, I listened to uh, Rick Zamperin talking about him this morning and uh, a bit of an interview with the book deal he did with uh, Milton. said, I love this city. This city was me. And he was our best salesman for a long, long time. And uh, the tragedy is that he, you know, with dementia and so on, that's just an awful 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 disease if it's a disease but it's an awful thing to have and it took some good years away from moscow but when you see the players and everybody reminisce i think you nailed it he he personified hamilton big tough mean heart of gold and a gentle giant he he brought all of it into one thing and 68 will always be remembered and 72. Right. Yeah, 68 and 72, the two numbers. His number and the year of the Grey Cup in Hamilton where he was uh, okay, yep, 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 yep. at home. See, those, those, those two numbers become synonymous, absolutely. An old buddy of mine, when Kenny Hobart uh, lived with me back in the late 80s, uh, Mike Dirks was around all the time. And I, Dirks wore 68 and knew what a privilege and an honor it was. And he was given the number. So uh, those guys that before they retired it really did appreciate Mosca and uh, he was always around. I, I remember he uh, introduced, because uh, I, when I was uh, Joe uh, Lapsovich and Brian Lloyd and I uh, owned the Collins Hotel, we, uh, I reintroduced uh, the Ticac Quarterback Club for the luncheons and Ange would come out. And through that relationship, he called me afterwards and he said, I got this great opportunity. Thank goodness he was on the phone because I didn't, I wasn't as hot on it as he was. He introduced a project like, remember the yellow pages? He introduced peach pages and they had what uh, was... billboards around Hamilton to compete with yellow pages with Ange dressed in pink. I'm going, are you <laughs> kidding me? And what was the point? Well, just there was because yellow pages, no Google, nothing like that back then. Right. And, uh, but he had this idea or somebody had the idea and he was the front man for it. And I went, holy cow. No, I didn't, uh, 
we didn't participate because I didn't, I didn't get it and it didn't work. So I guess it wasn't the only one didn't get it, but he introduced peach pages. Well, and then more recently for people who may not remember him or younger, uh, he did those denture commercials for a while. That was his more recent thing until, uh, uh, until he sort of scaled back his public appearances. And, you know, I had someone today say, well, of course, you know, he had dementia and all that football, all that clanging of heads. Okay. Two things on that one. First of all, um, I knowing Ange, any head that bashed into another head, I guarantee you it was the other head that took the brunt of it. Ange was, his head was a cinder block. He was, he was such a solid guy, but two, keep in mind, he was what, 83, 84 when he passed away. I mean, you know, I, I, I don't want to be glib at, in any way, but dementia happens to a lot of people when they get up into their eighties or, or a fair number of people. And, you know, this was not something that affected him from any account that I've ever heard back in his forties or fifties or sixties. I mean, this is a, you know, he was a man who lived a long full life and uh, thank goodness for that. But it's, um, I don't know that in, we can have all the discussions we want and it's fair conversation about football and head injuries and all the rest. I don't think that that was what was at the, I think he just was a guy who lived a long life and eventually in the last couple of years or three years had, had some issues, but, um, well, boy, he was, his his mom suffered from dementia, sadly, and she's never played a game of football in her life. So I think you're on to some, and now in fairness, like all of them, so many of them, they wore leather helmets. I mean, that's like putting a bandaid on your head and playing football and crashing into somebody compared to what they have now. And today, as many guys are susceptible as they were in the old days. So yeah. But a, Don, a that's, label. there's a reason for that. There's a, it, like those leather helmets, as crazy as it would be to say, Hey, you know what? The CFL should bring back the leather helmets. You want to know what would happen if they did guys wouldn't tackle with their head anymore. They'd tackle like rugby players again, because it would hurt to hit with a leather helmet on. You would decide that it's not a wise idea. Cause now a helmet is not so much a protective device. It's a battering ram. Well, we've had this conversation because we've been doing this a long time about helmets and hockey and face visors and everything else. And the, the, the kids today in minor hockey think they're bulletproof. Now, they don't hit to the head, but five years ago, they'd smash a guy in the head because you can't hurt them. Back when Bobby Hall was a star and Harry Howell was a star, and those guys were stars in the NHL, they respected each other. Like, you know, if you bring your head up, I'm going to cut him. And if he doesn't, I mean, I'm going to get cut. So there was so much respect, and I think that's what you're talking about. You're talking about they wouldn't hit with their head because one only got leather, and they played more like rugby. But it's, it's as much a respect thing as it is anything else. And I'll tell you, our games... And they're trying to bring, they're trying to drag it back. You look at the NFL and the CFL and stuff, you know, they're trying to drag it back in. But in the old days, it was inherent. You had respect because the other guy, you didn't want him to do it to you and you respected him. And uh, that respect's gone. Well, I'll use rugby again. I mean, rugby is one of those sports or Aussie rules football, take your pick. Uh, Those sports that you look at and you go, they are nuts. And yet, when was the last time you saw a guy go flying in head first to make a tackle? They don't because it you would be more damaged than the person you're tackling. You tackle by angling the person off or dragging them down from behind or 
getting them with the shoulder like you're supposed to. But as the equipment has become better and better and more and more protective, you're right. You feel like you are invincible and you're bulletproof. And so I can do those things. And yeah, you know, every once in a while, very unfortunately, someone ends up with a broken neck or something else. It's a terrible, terrible thing. But 99.9999% of the time, nothing like that ever happens. Anyway, well, I, I, uh, I agree with you on both counts. They're, they're crazy and they're tough. Like they're, yeah. They're and, a lot and back of to the toughness, I, back to the toughness with Ange for a second, because I mean, this was a guy who, I mean, he, there is a reason you can build a, um, a reputation. You could build a caricature for yourself of being a tough guy, probably without being all that tough if you're just gigantic and all the rest of the stuff but he he was he, he it was not a caricature i mean that was truly uh, that was truly who he was you you go back and watch the old tapes and i was pretty young when he was at his peak but you go back and watch those old tapes he 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 was a big man bigger than most everyone else in the league at that time but he could run and he was a tough guy well was he ever and i'll, I'll tell you when you want to talk about how tough old football players and how long they remember things, remember that incident with Joe Cap at the at the Great Cup yep. game. Yep. When yep. Joe Cap went out, and Angelo Mosca uh, hit Joe Cap. Some think a little late. You can judge for yourself. Joe Cap. Joe Cap never forgot. That had to be fifty years ago. Yep. Football and that was the famous forget. fight and, at the 2011 Great Cup. And Ange was tough enough to stand up to him, and you know it was its uh, toughness was big, and Ange was Ange was a larger than life character. Yeah, and and the the unfortunate thing about this, there's a lot of unfortunate things because we you know we've lost, as I say, a Hamilton legend. But the unfortunate part of this, this isn't a disparaging comment to anybody else in town. Uh, there is nobody who takes that mantle now. There there is just there is nobody that you point to and say, that is Hamilton. I mean, you could do that with Ange. I, I don't think that the person exists who steps into his shoes now or steps onto that podium and then becomes that person. I, I think it was just him. And you know what? I, I gotta, I'm going to tell you what I think, which is really unusual for me. I'm going to tell you what I think. That's okay. <laughs> because we do, we always revisit history. We want to take statues down. We want to do this. We want to do that. Angelo Mosco represented Hamilton as a tough, hard-nosed football player, and there isn't a replacement. I'm going to tell you, that's okay with me because you can't artificially replace a guy like that. Right. He was bigger right. than life, and it's okay. Move on. We don't have that guy anymore, but we have his right. memory. Yeah, and, and, and I, I was not suggesting that we find someone. I, my, my comment simply is no. he was unique. There is nobody else that fits that role that can be the steel worker, that can be the grittiness of the city, that can be the football player, that can be the charmer, that can be all those things. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think that person exists, and you're right. I don't think you go and create it fraudulently and, and or just, just for the sake of creating it. It's either there or it isn't. Yeah, I, I didn't suggest you were looking for that. And I hope nobody else does because it's okay that if it's over, that's good. That's fine. That's history. And he was he was our guy, and it's okay that he's not here. It's not okay he's not here. It's okay we don't have that guy anymore. You don't have to look to replicate him. That's my point. It's okay with that. I'm okay with that. 
the uh, one of the most interesting. We got to run one of the most interesting things on social media because there was a ton of social media response. So, you know, if you've been following over the last couple of days uh, on Facebook or on Twitter or other places, um, so many media people, so who dealt with him, so many other people who dealt with him. Uh, the one that really stood out to me, and I have no idea how I came across this one because I don't follow this person. <laughs> I don't follow this person on Twitter, but. An old wrestler from the 80s, the Iron Sheik. I saw it too. Tw- tweeted out about Angelo Mosca, and you're like, all right, you know, somehow that just seemed like, you know, if the Iron Sheik is tweeting out about what an unbelievable wrestler and guy and performer and all the rest Angelo Mosca was, you know, it, it's fine for me to say it or you to say it or someone else in the media to say it. But when you hear these other people who worked with him and and traveled with him and did all these things that, that, that to me says something about the guy as well. So, um, and I th- I'm thinking the Sheik is no kid either. I know. No, no, no. I mean, keep in mind that. So he was one of the, one of Hulk Hogan's first real enemies in the eighties surge of WWF back then. So we're talking 40 years ago. He was probably in his mid thirties or thereabouts because he was already he'd already been established for a while. So yeah, he's he's no spring chicken either. And but they and remember lives north of Toronto lives north of Toronto. I saw that tweet. It may may have been Rick Zamperin or Bubba O'Neill, but it was tagged to somebody on that, and I saw it. It was I thought it was pretty cool. That was well, yeah, but it wasn't like the president of the United States said it, but it was cool. Uh, no, and, and we've now as as I'm just saying this, I realized that in the last number of years. We've now lost, uh, I hope I'm not forgetting someone, but I would say our three most famous wrestlers from this area, even if you're not going to touch football, talk about football, because Dewey Robertson, the missing link, uh, he passed away a number of years ago, and Iron Mike Sharp passed away four or five years ago, and now Ange Mosca, King Kong Mosca. So uh, end of an era, really. And um, Well, we still got Billy Ray Lyons and Dundas. Don't you dare miss it. But Billy Ray also passed away, didn't he? Is he gone? I'm pretty Billy sure Red Billy Red. I, I'm going to have to look that one up, but I'm pretty sure Billy Red is also. Uh, and if uh, I don't want to speak out of turn, if Billy Red, if you're alive and listening, you apologies. Made that call but the, once. yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. I, in the break, I'm going to look it up, and I'm pretty sure that Billy Red has uh, has passed away. But I will find that. But there's number four. You're right. Don't you dare miss it. Uh, by the way, uh, Billy Red Lions sadly did pass away. 2009, he passed away. So I was pretty sure. And to your um, to your p- point, just very quickly, when uh, when you said that I made that call, yes, um, many years ago, <laughs> I had heard that Billy Red Lions had passed away shortly after I'd written something about him, and so I called to express my sympathies, and I got his wife on the phone, and uh, I said, "I'm so sorry to hear about Billy Red," and she says, "Hold on a second, and I hear her screaming now in the in the background, Billy, someone's on the phone for you," <laughs> so. Clearly jumped the gun a little bit on that one, but not this time. Uh, real name, William Snip, by the way. Billy Red Lions was William Snip, which, uh, yeah, no, I don't think anybody would have known him by that name. Anyway, so, uh, gonna, Don. I think he should be in the Dundas Sports Hall of Fame and maybe going to get at that. Uh, uh, you know what? Absolutely, he should. Absolutely, he should. Yeah. Uh, you know what? Absolutely, he should. And, and I know that there's a, all the huge debate about wrestling and you know whether it's a sport and all the rest and i would say this i i I don't pretend that wrestling is a sport but you 
absolutely better be pretty athletic if you're going to do it. You got to be an athlete, even if the results may be preordained. It's um, it doesn't make you not athletic. Well, um, if we think anyway. darts and, and uh, uh, snooker snooker is, then yeah, it is. Well, yeah, and if you can show poker on sports channels, I guess wrestling is, uh, you know, what justifies it to me. Yep. Sorry. Anyway, go ahead. No, 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 no. It's uh, it's an interesting discussion. Always, there's there's always this fight about whether or not it should be included or not. But I'll tell you what. What is a sport? Although I got to tell you, I was I was kind of stunned when I saw this today. Bianca Andrescu, who Don, it doesn't seem very long ago that we were talking about Bianca Andrescu as one of, if not the greatest Canadian female athlete, um, in the discussion anyway. Bianca Andreescu right now is number 46 in the world in tennis, in the WTA rankings. And I, I saw that and I got thinking, you've been around athletes for a long time. How do you possibly, there's got to be reasons, and this is not a shot, but how do you go from being at the absolute top of your game where you are winning major championships to becoming number 46 in the world? Now, it's still a 46. I mean, it's still a lot higher than I am in anything. But nonetheless, it's it's not U.S. Open winning quality. How do you how do you go from there to there that quickly? Uh, I I I don't, I don't think it's that hard. Um, you become a, a multimillionaire virtually overnight, right? I mean, she won the U.S. Open and she won the Rogers Cup, I think. And when you do that and you don't have self-discipline and you don't have strong management, and this is where I'm not a big agent guy, but when you haven't got support and an agent around you that keeps you focused, or if you've got some people around you saying you're the best ever and they they blow it out of proportion and you stop doing what made you that good, because you believe you can walk out on the court and be that good and you don't work at it, then I think it's a recipe for failure. And I really believe, and I don't follow tennis a great deal, as you might appreciate, but as an athlete, when you hit the pinnacle at that young age, you either put like uh, uh, Tiger Woods was exceptional put the pedal down and work twice as hard to be the greatest he could be. Some guys win a couple tournaments. They're going to be this, they're going to be that. And they go off the rails because they, a couple things, they read their own headlines. People around them tell them how good they are. You get off your routine that got you to where you are because now you think you're exceptional. But Scott, you've been around athletes your, your whole career really to varying degrees and the ones that work the hardest have the most success and if you let up you won't have success this doesn't mean apparently she has seemingly she has all the athletic abilities necessary to be a superstar but if you well and she's had injuries and you don't work at it you're done yeah and she's had injuries unquestionably so the injuries have affected her no question um, but you know what, even so I just, I, I was stunned when I saw that number and maybe even more of an example of what you're talking about. Uh, cause you know, Andrescu, you could probably chalk up some of this or a lot of it to the fact that she just hasn't been able to compete. But 
um, to me, you know, Eugenie Bouchard seems like it falls in even more to what you're talking about, where suddenly you get a million commercials and you do Sports Illustrated swimsuit and you're in the courtside seats at NBA games and on and on. And the thing that got you there in the first place seems like it's what you do in your free time from all the other stuff. And uh, it just, it, it's always remarkable to me though, that, that it takes so long for an athlete to climb to the pinnacle. It takes so much work and it is so hard to get to the top where, you know, whatever it is that they're doing the best in the world. And it is so, as you say, it's, it does not take long at all to have it all go away. And, and, you know, if you don't, do all those things that you were doing before, which now, as you say, when you suddenly got millions of dollars and fame and opportunities and all these other things probably seems a lot less enticing to put all that work in when you've kind of already made it. I, I don't blame any of them. I, it, to me, and you, you've said the name to me, rather than blaming any of them and taking shots at them, all it does is make me even more impressed by someone like Tiger Woods who got all that money and got all that fame and for how many years stayed at the top of the game. That's the impressive thing. Tom Brady's playing. Yes. Tom Brady doesn't need the money. Tom Brady's richer than you, but he's still playing in the NFL. Come on. He's still playing football. I think he's richer than you. Right? So Barely. those are the pure guys. Bouchard was kind of like our little darling for a little while. And you, you, we see it a lot. And it's sad. And I don't know the answer, but I think it's because sometimes the people around you have too much to say. And you get off your work ethic because you, you've made it. Finally, you've made it. But there's no right to stay there. And the Williams sisters, I'm sure, work their butts off to stay there and everybody doesn't it's like the 15 minutes of fame right now they're rich but you know those people also it all piddles away on them because they have this and they have that and everything else and sometimes i think i don't know you mentioned injuries sometimes those injuries can be you know kind of expanded into excuses and you got to play through it. If you want to be a premier athlete, you want to be one of the best athletes in the world, you got to play through that stuff and make it happen. Well, Not one sure more. She's doing you, that. You mentioned Tom Brady, and uh, again, pointing to the fact of how difficult it is, and it makes it even more impressive when someone does it. Um, I remember very clearly, and you probably do too, we all watched the Super Bowl last year, and it was Tom Brady, and it was Patrick Mahomes for Kansas City, and if you remember leading up to the Super Bowl, Mahomes won a Super Bowl and already all the talk was about, oh, how Patrick Mahomes was the heir apparent, how Patrick Mahomes was going to take a shot at Tom Brady's record for Super Bowls, how Patrick Mahomes was in the mix to someday now be considered the greatest quarterback of all time, how Patrick Mahomes might topple Tom Brady from his perch. Patrick Mahomes this year, just one year later, is a pretty darn mediocre quarterback and Tom Brady is again staying on as the guy. And, you know, we, we saw this in golf when it was it was Tiger and then Phil Mickelson. It was Tiger and then Rory McIlroy. It was Tiger and this guy and Tiger and that guy. And they all fell away. There are so few of them that can find a way to stay in that place for as long as they do. 
And, you know, I look at the Mahomes thing. You go back and if, if those networks had the guts to replay the pre-hype, pre-show stuff from last year again right now, they would be embarrassed talking about how Patrick Mahomes was destined now to topple Tom Brady. Because yeah, it, but, that's never going to happen. But, but, but here's one of the big changes, I think, Scott, <clears throat> that we all, we all live through, is the media. And, uh, you know, there's the old traditional Hamilton Spectator that I buy, pick up at my mailbox every morning when I uh, head out. There's that media, and there's the instant media. And what they try and do, the NFL networks and everything else, is create something to talk about. Even if it's not all that uh, relevant, but they've got to find something to talk about. And these people that they build up, they come and they go and they, they don't revisit it because it's false, but they're just trying to put on a show, right? There's always clamoring to say, we were the first to report, and then they don't want to report the fact that, by the way, that was kind of a load of crap, and we're really sorry about it. You don't really get a lot of that. And I think that's part of what happens is we try to build up legends that really aren't there. Earlier on, we talked about a real legend. We talked about a guy that was a legend with the Ticats and a legend for the city. You can't manufacture that. And a lot of the media today, the electronic media, try and do that just to create interest so somebody will pay attention to them. I think that's what happens. Got a few minutes with Don Robertson. And Don, I want to ask you, um, every week when I introduce you, and people know this, uh, that you're the guy that is behind the Dundas Real McCoys, the senior A team in Allen Cup hockey. And uh, it's been a while since you guys played, and most every league is back on the ice, not you guys yet. But it sounds as though at least there is light at the end of the tunnel for your league. Explain. Well, yeah, there is, Scott. And and uh, last year, uh, in August, not this year, the year before in August, we said we'd start in January because of the pandemic. And we tried to be thoughtful about it. And on December the 23rd, we announced our season wouldn't take place for obvious reasons. But every other team in the OHA were still holding hope. So we try to be practical. So this year, we looked at it uh, early on, booked our race time, and said, okay, so we'll start in January because we're not sure how this is going to roll out. And so we did that. So we'll have a shortened season, and we will have um, uh, more games in a condensed period of time because it's a working man's league full of former pro hockey players, with guys with families, but we're going to tighten it up a little bit. And uh, the uh, Hockey Canada told me before Dundas and Hamilton were going to host. This year, it would be us hosting as long as we can sort out the details. So we just try to be really pragmatic about it all, making sure that the buildings can be opened up and we're not canceling stuff. So we try to be the adult in the room, and we think we have been, although the junior leagues are carrying on. But we didn't know that when, when we made this call, right? So... Uh, we plan to carry on. We're sad Whitby's gone. Caledon Cal- is in. Um, having more trouble than I actually thought they would have in uh, recruiting players, but apparently that's taken an awful uptick. And, you know, we- we've lost some guys. <clears throat> you know, they just move on. They find better things to do. And 
uh, more responsibility for kids, but there's lots of young guys that are going to come in. So, you know, we're going to have a really good league, I'm sure. Dundas, Brantford, Hamilton have tremendous rivalries. You know, the Steel Hawks were in the finals with Brantford last year after Brantford sneaked by us for no apparent reason. But anyway, <laughs> so we'll, um, you know, we'll, uh, I think we're going to, we're going to find some success. We're going to have some surprises in the Allen Cup this year in working with Hockey Canada, but, you know, those details are still being worked out. So we'll talk about, talk about those details at a later date, but, uh, yeah, I think we're okay. Yeah, I think we're going to carry on and have a good year and we'll have more games in a short period of time. And I think it'll be fine. Yeah. It's going to work uh, out. Well, we have, we have 30 seconds left, but I want to ask you, you mentioned about the players for a lot of these guys who are now some of them in their mid thirties, this has probably been the first time since they were four or five they've had a winter without hockey, which is either going to make them more hungry to come back and keep playing, or maybe some of them have decided that, you know what, I've learned there is more to a winter than hockey. It's, it, it's no wonder you're saying that there's been some guys who have moved on or not. Scott, your assessment is 100%. A lot of guys are saying, you know, I'm okay without playing. You know, I'm still competitive, but I'm okay without playing. And some of them are going, you know, I only got two or three years left of this. So let's get at it. So, and oddly enough, some of the older guys have said, we're going to take a couple more years of this. And it's the mid-age guys in the mid-20s that are rethinking it, hmm. which really surprised me. I would have thought yeah. guys like 33, 34 would have said, you know, no, I'm good. But they're looking at it going, I haven't got much time left. Let's get at it. So it's odd. You're right. Your assessment is good. I don't know how to read it, but we'll be fine. We've added four or five new really good guys and two or three guys that weren't going to come back, and so it'll be fun. We will be looking for that early in the new year. Dundas, Hamilton, Brantford, Caledon, touch wood, but uh, yeah, and then the Allen Cup in the spring. So, uh, Don, we'll talk about this again down the road uh, closer to that time, but listen, really appreciate you doing this tonight, as always. Thanks for the time. Good. Thanks, Scott, for caring about senior hockey, and I enjoy it. Thank you. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.